You ready? History of religion, as told by some. It's already like a loaded phrase, right? The history of religion. Great. History of religion in one paragraph. Early humans came to the realization that their survival as a species was dependent on things like food and water. Brilliant. And for food to grow, it needs sun and water in proper proportion. Too much sun and plants wilt, not enough, and they will die as well. These basic observations brought people to the conclusion that they were dependent on unseen forces they could not control for their survival. Place yourself in a bit of like, pri- like primal sense of, 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 uh, of the world, right? Looking around, no technology, can't Google anything. You're like, how do I make sense of sometimes it rains, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes there's drought, sometimes it's good. I need to make sense and trying to understand how to control what I clearly cannot control because I don't live if the crops don't grow. The belief arose that these forces are either on your side or they aren't. And how do you keep these forces on your side? How do you keep the rain and the sun uh, and the wind on your side? The next time you have a harvest, so right around this time of year, uh, you take a portion of that harvest and you offer it on an altar as a sign of your gratitude. Things went really, really well. We got some grain. I'm going to put it on the altar, light it on fire, because that's helpful. You could have eaten that. And it goes to the gods, and you go, all right, thank you, God of X, Y, or Z. I'm obviously condensing a lot of things and simplifying, but stay with me. Because you need the forces, and they would attribute gods or goddesses, right? The god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of the harvest, the god of the cereal on your side. Now imagine what happened when people would offer a sacrifice, but then it didn't rain, or the sun didn't shine, or their animals still got diseases, or they were unable to have children, which is a huge one. Obviously, they concluded they didn't offer enough. Major tension. They did not offer enough. That was the driving, driving sense when we look back through history of how people equate all, how much they give, how much they put on the altar in their relationship to these unseen forces. And so they offered more and more because what religion had built into it from the very beginning was something that we as 21st century postmoderns know really well, anxiety. We had anxiety built into the system. You never knew where you stood with the gods. The gods were furious. The gods were demanding. And if you don't please them, they will punish you by bringing calamity. But what if the things went well? What if it rained just the right amount and the sun shined just the right amount? What if it all appeared that the gods were pleased with you? Well, then you'll need to offer thanks. But how would you ever know if you properly showed them how grateful you are? How would you know you'd offered enough. If things went well, you never knew if you'd been grateful and offered enough. And if things didn't go well, clearly you hadn't done enough. Anxiety, either way, uh, is what ends up ruling the day. Now, stay with me one last thing here. Whether things went well or not, the answer was always sacrifice more. Whether things went good or bad, it was always give more, give more, give more. And so you'd offer part of your crop, crop, And you'd offer a goat, maybe a lamb, maybe a cow. The very nature of these early religions is that everything escalated because of your anxiety to please the gods. And at many times, it gets to the point when things are really going wrong or when you're really trying to go extreme, something would happen where you would offer your child. This is why if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you see all these places of response to, to, to people offering up their children. This is why when Abraham, and this is a whole other story, Abraham, who we're going to talk about in a minute, when God says, um, 
I want you to sacrifice Isaac. We often interpret that as like, oh, look, that's how, that's how much of a man of God he was. He was willing to sacrifice his own son. Have you ever heard this interpretation before? That's how much God really, 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 really loved, or Abraham really loved God. He was willing to do that. Well, he just, just goes and does it. It's like the most natural thing. Uh, this is totally normal in the system of things that a God would ask, that this would be his understanding, that God would ask Abraham to go and sacrifice his son. We read in the text, this would have been a very normal thing, the way in which he even responds. God doesn't need to fill in details for him to do this. And so what I, what's so interesting about this is how does that story end? For those of you who know your Bible a little bit, God's the one who provides the sacrifice. Brand new idea in the history of religion. But I'll preach about that in a couple of years or something. So, if this is the context, if this is a bit of an understanding of why or how people operated, then when we read books, anyone ever read through Leviticus? Anyone ever read any part of Leviticus? Raise your hand. Handful of you. If you've never read through Leviticus and you like <clears throat> laying in your bed and you're maybe at a hotel or something and you lean over and you pull out the good Gideon Bible there and you're just like bored because the TV's not working and you just open your Bible, you do that weird thing that evangelicals do where they're like, Lord, just speak to me and I open the Bible and it's like, and that's what the word is for the day. Sorry if I just rebuked you really bad, but don't read your Bible like that. You open up the Bible and then, and you, you happen to open to Leviticus, right? It's kind of a you know, middle beginning part of the text sort of when you open your Bible and you open it up and, and then you start reading and it sounds like a, B-grade like horror slasher flick at certain times, and then you're learning what do I do with my like donkey, and what do I do with my poop, and how do I clean myself? It's all these random laws, but it's all built around the sacrificial system. And and many people have commented that what's amazing and revolutionary about Leviticus is not only saying look all things are spiritual, but it also is pointing to these again these very first people, this tribe that God has called, um, that they can know where they stand with God. You can actually know God's meeting them where they're at. And in a culture where you need to sacrifice all these things, like, look, 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 look. Just do this. Just do this one thing and you can know your sins are forgiven and I am with you. Again, sermon I'll give later some other time. So in setting this up, you have basically what is the kickoff in the scriptures. What, what really kickstarts the story of redemption we are made in the image of God. We have fallen. We've sinned. The beginning of Genesis, we just get this picture of how brutal and violent the world is. Left to our own devices, this is the story that's being told. Again, a reminder, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, these are all books that were written to slaves in Egypt. They were written to them. This is your story. This is your background. This is who you are. And this is where this thing is going. So this is how violent the world gets. And then the whole biblical narrative Everything you've ever wanted to know about the Bible, all the stuff you really only like to read about Jesus, all this stuff kickstart with Abraham. And he's not Abraham yet, he's Abram. And it starts with this unbelievable moment where God calls this man and says, I want to create a tribe. I want to create a tribe, and tribes are a big deal, right? This is how you survive. You have your people, you have your initiation rites. And this is how you journey together. You make sure like, like you're, you're all like having sex so there's more kids. Sorry, that's how kids are made. Um, and so you, this is what you do. You protect the tribe. You get really insulated and you create power. You gather land. You do the best you can in this really violent world. And you have God speaking to Abraham saying, leave your old ways, come and follow me. And then this tribe is gonna be one that's going to be a blessing to the whole world. 
this tribe is going to be a blessing to the whole world. This tribe is going to bless other tribes. We look at that and go, yeah, that seems like a pretty normal, like, nice thing to do. Brand new idea. This isn't just Christians who are saying this, who like to tout their own way. Like uh, Thomas Cahill, I encourage you to go read him. You have a number of writers out there who actually end up becoming followers of Jesus sometimes through studying the Old Testament text going, wow, what we have taken from the Jews, this has shaped how we see the whole world. Our understanding of, of the Judeo-Christian roots is that to be a tribe that blesses other tribes, um, we look back on this text and we go, man, there's so many barbaric laws and so many things that look out of date or seem so backwards and yet at their time were incredibly, incredibly progressive. So this leads me to a story, Genesis 15. I just want to read one verse to you. Uh, we have here Abram, who is sorting out what this whole blessed to be a blessing thing is going to be about. God calls this man, this old, old man. He says, yeah, I know you're really old, and I know there's no real actual biological chance that you're going to have kids, but I'm going to give you a kid. To that, by the way, Abraham laughs. So sometimes when God speaks, we just need to laugh. How many of you have ever had that experience? You're like, yeah, God, I'm not, no. He has actually faith in, in, in this word that God has spoken over him. And in this moment, he begins to sort through, okay, what is this going to look like? You want to give me some land? You wanna, you're going to start something new through, through me that's somehow going to bless the nations. And so then we come to this text, this scripture in Genesis 15. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> okay, just keep that verse just, I don't know, floating around in your head somewhere. And I want to tell you a story. So, um, I'm just going to move my Ikea bag up here. I'll need that in a moment. So, uh, trying to sell a car. Uh, anyone had to sell a car recently? Uh, it's I find it incredibly annoying. Um, and I always have found this moment just jarring. Where that moment where somebody comes and like they obviously want to test drive the car. And uh, so somebody came to go buy. This was like my 80s, 80 something, I don't remember the year, Jetta. It was the Wolfsburg edition. I had it in high school. My uncle gave it to me, passed down. The Wolfsburg edition was when like the first time like computers were in cars. You like pushed where the windshield wiper fluid would be and like it would tell you the temperature outside. Anyone old enough to be able to remember when that was amazing? You were, I would like hit the button. I'm like, and like, I would show friends. We'd be driving around, like, you know, I'm in 11th grade or something, or driving around. I'd be like, guys, guys, check us out. Yeah, it's 83 degrees outside. And they're like, no, it's not. I think it's so broken. But it was like, but it still tried. It tried to do it. It would calculate the things like basic arithmetic or something. I, I don't even remember what it did. Anyway, this is my car. Um, awful confession I had to tell my parents later. I crashed. Um, the, the right headlight into one of those cement um, uh, pillars that would just sit in the parking lot usually, you know, that were like, you know, keeping you from hitting the actual thing they don't want you to hit. Yeah, I was like looking off in another direction. I was like driving through a parking lot, just like something caught my eye. I have no idea what it was. Um, and uh, probably a girl or something like that. <laughs> and like, huh. And then I hit it. I hit it going pretty slow at like five, six, seven miles an hour. Um, and, but it totally dented in the whole uh, right side of the car. And uh, I told my parents that uh, I walked out of CVS and I saw some El Camino kind of hit it as it was pulling out. 
I don't understand why I told them that story, but for the longest time, that's what my parents believed until actually very recently I remembered this blatant lie and confessed it to them. So anyway, trying to sell um, uh, this car later on, I gave this guy the, give the guy the keys, and he goes to uh, test drive the car. And, uh, and it's like 15 minutes. Yeah, 15 minutes goes by. I don't hear anything. Uh, he does not, he's not back yet. It's cool. And 30 minutes go by, and he's still not back yet, and this is getting pretty weird. And so by about mm, 31 minutes, I'm like, okay, all right, I'm going to have to call the police because he's either in an accident or he has just stolen my car. And he told me he had parked around the corner, so I didn't actually see his car. I went to go look to see if his car was there, and there was like 15 cars around the corner. So I had no idea uh, Anyway, what was going on? So I called the police. Police end up finding him uh, at a convenience store, and they basically start to question him. And the guy's response was, well, he just handed me the keys. Yeah. Anyway, so the police come back, and they, ex- they I- explain this transaction. Um, they, they explain, like, to me what has taken place, and they actually get the guy back over. So the guy's in the police car, and we have this whole conversation. Uh, and... We start to explain to him basic business transactions. Like, actually, when you do this, you're test driving, and for you to actually take this car, you need to actually exchange money. And his response, like, oh, it's a great idea. No part of that story was true, by the way. None of it. (laughs) I just wanted to tell it so you might actually believe for a second. How dumb is that story? It's ridiculous. I, I tell that story because in our day and age, nobody thinks like that, right? You'd have to think this person was from like some, like, I don't know, somewhere where they don't do normal business transactions of any kind with a concept of like he at least had enough information to come and he wanted to buy the car, get the car. He sees the keys and he goes, what on earth? Like the guy just handed me the keys. I thought everything was good. Oh, it's a brilliant idea. Exchange you some money for your thing. I was thinking that's kind of unfair. No, this wasn't a real story. The, the hitting the El Camino part was a real story. I I share that because this is kind of the world that these ancient Jewish people in the book of Genesis are inhabiting. There's no police force to call. There's no, like right now we take for granted the fact that if something went wrong, I could call 911 and a team of like highly specialized people like would come and try to solve a a case, would step in in the case of injustice. Um, We have ways of doing exchange where every time you swipe your credit card uh, for some Doritos, like you swipe it and you get the Doritos and they get your money from the card. This is, again, really, really simple understandings. Two parties agree to a deal. I give you $26. You give me 12 issues of horse and hound. Like, this is how this stuff goes. The entire system exists and survives and works uh, a good portion of the time fairly consistently because it's undergirded by law enforcement and a justice system, insurance, car titles, wire transfers, paperwork, 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 right? We understand this is the world we live in. So in the ancient world, and I'm obviously simplifying things in a number of ways, the answer to this problem of like, well, I can't call anybody, so what do I do? Well, the answer here is you covenant You covenant. In the ancient world, when you entered into a deal with someone, you made a covenant with them, an oath to do your part, a promise. The only time we ever really use the word covenant in in our day and age is usually around marriage. So first, with the covenant, uh, you get some animals. So I wanted to kind of illustrate this a little bit, um, but given um, 
I just thought I didn't want to bloody the stage. There's a wedding directly after this here. Um, you know, and my vegetarian tendencies don't lend me to just killing animals. Plus, there's probably some health code violations. Uh, so I have just a small squirrel here that we're going to put a knife through. No. So, you know, and I thought, you know, there's, there's a number of people in our church community who, uh, I don't know. I, this is, this is the, the, the coolest way, I guess, I could think. Uh, meet meet uh, Julian. I don't know. Jefferson. Bennington. Okay, Bob. <laughs> so you would, you would take some animals. I want to be really careful here. You know, maybe I'll do it down here. How's that sound? Yeah, because I don't want to preach the rest of the sermon. All right, let's see what else we got here. Thank you, Michael Klaus, for your taxidermy uh, collection. <laughs> and a r- rabbit. Oh, gosh. Jenna, you were right. The tongue fell out. Anybody from PETA here? <laughs> Edison down here is one of the chefs at Cooking Brown is saying, you could actually eat that, man. <laughs> I got a killer recipe. All right. And I got another rabbit's head here. So we got, it's all rabbits, basically. Rabbit, uh, some deer tongue, and then the rest of the deer. And hey, let's put the Ikea bag in there just for fun. Sacrifice the Ikea bag. So... First off, in the ancient world, you make a covenant. Here's what you do. You cut a bunch of animals in half. You chop them in half and you make two rows. Um, Third, you lay out the halves with space between them forming an aisle. Fourth, you stand side by side at one end of the aisle made of animal halves and you'd uh, each state what you're going to do and uphold your end of the bargain. So for instance... I will sell you my, my Volkswagen Jetta and this fictitious gentleman will say to me, I will give you X amount of dollars and that's it. So why do you do all of this? And then you walk through together. So let's, let's practice this, Adam. <clears throat> so Adam, I promise to not tell you to... Uh, do the announcement for offering last second anymore. I promise to keep picking you up every Sunday morning at 6.50 a.m. Awesome. Covenant. And let's do it. Don't step on the tongue. Way to go. We did it. Sealed. So here's why you, here's why, here's why you do this. You would say as you walk through, we should have done this, may I, something like this. This is a bit of a paraphrase, but may I become like these animals if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant. Yeah, pretty brutal, right? It's just, just an announcement, Adam, and it's just picking me up in the morning. May I become cut in half and laid bare if I don't uphold my end of the covenant. But do you see the point? In earlier cultures where systems of justice and enforcement were more primitive and in some cases absolutely non-existent, your word was your bond. Rituals like this were glue, like the insurance, the way that people trusted each other. May I become like these animals if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant. This is where the phrase cut a deal actually literally comes from, truly. Like, oh, let's cut a deal. Yeah hipster taxidermy. That's exactly what it's talking about. 
I thought that was really funny. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all of this, what on earth are you talking about, Andrew? All of this leads to Genesis 15, in which we see God making unbelievable, very unique in history promises to Abraham about the tribe that is going to come from his loins. That will be a new kind of tribe in the world. He, through him, and Abraham is having an incredibly hard time believing God wants to use him to do something like this in the world, especially because of his protest, what can you give me since I'm childless? Everything is about seeing like the next step in your generation. Everything is about like, we could have a whole sermon about circumcision, we got a whole sermon about like seed, I mean a very like reproductive, you see a lot of reproductive stuff, not because there's some weird obsession with like, talking about fluids. It's all about like seeing this tribe, this unique one-of-a-kind tribe that God wants to bless the whole world through, beginning the redemption project of reclaiming everything back to himself. He wants to start with one old man who laughs when he says, you're going to do this through me. He wants to start with just one individual and says, trust me. And then they begin to walk this journey and then this tribe comes. So Abraham is like, really? Like, I got nothing going on. Like, we have tried the kids thing. It's not working. It gets really weird right from the start. God then takes Abraham outside. He shows him the stars and says, um, so, like, look at the stars. This is what your offspring will be like. In other words, you're going to have a lot of kids. Trust me which Abraham does. The next verse reads, Abraham believed the Lord, again, this is Genesis 15, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So, because this is where things take off in the ancient world, the gods were believed to be distant and detached and angry and all this sort of stuff, but this is a story about a God who spends a lot of time insisting that this God has plans to do something with Abraham. These gods aren't distant. This God is close. This God calls you out of who, where you were and sets you on a new path and says, I want to use you to bless the whole world. He begins with one person. This wasn't the idea of a God who comes down in almighty powerful ways and strikes down X, Y, or Z. This God begins redemptive history with an old guy who can't have kids. And he says, I want to show you and, and open up your mind to what God, the true God, is actually like. Why does this matter to us sitting here in Providence and getting there? A God who wants to do good for a person is something so different. And Abraham believes it. He trusts it. He trusts it. So God then tells him he's going to give him some land along with like, you're going to outnumber, your, your descendants are going to outnumber the stars. Land, such, I don't even have time to get into it, but such a huge, huge thing. This is where you're going to set up shop. This is going to be home base for this blessing machine that's going to be these first people, the Jews. So Abraham hears this. Okay, he's going to give him some land. So Abraham's next response is, how can I know I'll get this land? God responds, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram. Or bring me a deer head, two raggedy bunnies, and a tongue. So you know where this is going, right? Because the next verse reads, Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. 
How come God doesn't have to tell Abraham what to do with the animals? God doesn't explain this to him. How come he doesn't have to? Because Abraham already knows what's going on. This is a covenant. I'm making a covenant, an agreement with God. He and God are entering into a covenant. They're cutting a deal. And so Abraham does what people in his day did in situations like this. God tells Abraham all sorts of things that are going to happen to his people, right? And then the sun sets. And in the dark, we get the verse that we started with. I'm really uh, killing it with the props today. A smoking fire pot, i.e. Christmas tree shop pillar white candle. (laughs) A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Abraham lays all this out. They continue to talk. What's this going to look like? And then in the middle of the night, a smoking fire pot, which is, by the way, a symbol of God, of the divine, just invisibly passes through the taxidermy, through the halves. Why? Like, why is this an important passage? Why is this something that um, should cause us to, to pause? That's actually in the text. I got to keep coming up and down here. That's why in the text, it, it, it just stops. I've never, ever, ever, ever thought about this passage before. Many of you, I would assume, have never even, like, you kind of assume you know the basic Abraham story and don't go back to it. Recently, I stumbled upon, like, wait, what, what is going on here? God, the symbol of a smoking fire pot passing through the house of animals, your question should be, wait, 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 if it's a covenant, then myself and Adam, that Abraham and God should what? With me? Pass through together. This is a true covenant. Abraham knew what was going on. They're sorting out the deal. And what happens? They're both supposed to walk. Some mysterious way, Abraham walks with God through the halves. But Abraham doesn't go through. That's how you cut a deal. Both parties do their part. What's the point? God upholds both ends of the deal. Even if Abraham fails to do his part, this God will be faithful. Even if he messes the whole thing up, this whole, you're going to be a blessing to the world. You're going to lead this tribe that's going to take part in joining me and putting everything back. Be a blessing to the whole world to reclaim the land for good. And God walks through alone. He signs both sides of the covenant. Even if you make a mess of things, Abraham, like I'm going to take care of it. This is a story about a human being having a relationship with a living God. Brand new idea in human history. And it's not just a relationship. It's about a particular kind of relationship and a particular kind of God. One who's good, one who's generous, one who's kind, one who can be trusted, and one who keeps insisting, you can tr- I can be trusted. Trust me, I got this. I got this. This God 
passes through by himself. And the word I want us to zoom in on as we kind of land this today is this God is faithful. He is faithful. Sometimes we like to look at the Old Testament and go, oh, it's just a bunch of gruesomeness and let's just hurry up and get to Jesus where everything changes. Yet we see grace upon grace time after time in the story of Israel. This is important for us because we look back and of all the literally thousands of things we could talk about when we talk about the story of Israel, the great patriarchs and the kings and how God rescues and what God does and how do we make sense of violence over there and how do we make sense of his love over here and what's he doing with these people and why didn't he just do this first There's so many questions. But as I was praying, truly just praying, God, what do you want me to see? What do you want me to to, to help communicate? What about this story? When we look back at creation and we are made in the image of God, we look at the fall and our propensity for brokenness. When we get to the story of the first people, these people blessed to be a blessing to the world, we have a God that kicks the whole thing off by signing both sides. I am going to be faithful to you even when you are unfaithful. So I, I want to land the plane in, uh, in Nehemiah 9 if you have your Bibles open. In Nehemiah 9, we get like a mini history of the whole story of Israel. And it's so incredible. Just have the word like faithful in neon lights blinking on the screen. Like just, just keep that in the front of your mind as we go through this text. If you don't have your Bibles, just close your eyes and listen. Nehemiah 9. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, all the Chaldeans, and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful, and you made a covenant with him. We just read about this. With him to give to his descendants the land. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt, You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians had treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You have divided the sea before them, so they have passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By the day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were Uh, to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. This is the giving of the law. This is is how we're going to live together. He rescues them out of slavery, grace, and then he shows them how they're going to live. That sound familiar at all? Anybody else in history? Rescue, total grace, and then gives, yeah, it's pretty neat. Abraham, oh, never mind, it's a whole other story. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws and are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn an uplifted hand to give them. 
But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked and didn't obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast themselves an image of a calf, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt for when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you didn't abandon them in the wilderness. It goes on and on. They did this. They didn't acknowledge this brokenness, obey this law, and you were faithful. You were faithful. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet get swollen. And they would complain, and they would complain. Or they would just turn away from God constantly. They would just, God had given them all these commands, and they would just turn and walk away. Does this sound familiar to anyone? God gave them life. He rescued them up out of slavery. Anyone been rescued? Anyone sing Amazing Grace, so sweet the sound, and saved a wretch like me? Oh my gosh, yes, I remember that moment. How good it is, and God's brought me people or family to show me the way of Jesus, and I still find myself with this. Oh, or maybe th this is you. Um, throw that slide up. Yeah, maybe this is kind of how you're, you're looking at life right now. It's like you've walked into the flames, and you're like... This is fine. And you find yourself just absolutely trapped. You actually, you're so disillusioned or you so insulated yourself from the brokenness, from the fire around you, that, 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 that you don't know your way out. This has actually become normative. This is what it was like for these Jews time and time again. And God rescues them out. He signed both sides of the covenant. He's like, I can see this going badly. I'm with you. You don't need to, need to uphold your part because of who I am. Man. As soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. As soon as things got good for a moment, they continued to turn back. And when they cried out to you again, they heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. I think of God when I go, you can go through the rest of this passage in Nehemiah. It's absolutely brilliant. Just outlining this, the whole history of what's happened. I think of it like this. I was writing to the Newport Folk Festival. This is how I think of God's posture towards the Israelites. And um, I'm in, my friends, uh, uh, Jeffrey and Moret are in the car. And uh, somebody, uh, we were getting off the exit to go down towards Thames Street. You ever been in really bad traffic? And then there's always that person who instead of just getting in line, you know, where everybody else has been like patiently lined up waiting for their turn to get off the exit, they try to do the like drive around everybody and then like wait for a tiny opening and then like gun it, you know, into the spot and you're not going to like hit them. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know that move? Anyone guilty of that move? Oh, get out of here. Yeah, no, I am too. So usually when that happens, especially if you're a little riled up, we all want to get to the festival. We're like really excited. It's been so long we've been in traffic for. And there's this moment where the instinct is what? Yell. Select a particular finger and maybe highlight that in the window. Right? <laughs> yeah, hit their car. Some people, I have a big truck, Andrew. <laughs> Whatever it is. Like the, the response is generally just Fury. And, and we're driving up, and Marette and Jeffrey just go, this guy pulls up, and he's, like, trying to eke it right in front of them. And so they're, like, you know, four feet away through, through windshield, right? And he's, he's trying to push in, and they're, like, they know at this point they really have to let him go, or they're going to have to ram him. And they both, in unison, they're both about to get married. They were both about to get married at this point. It was just this beautiful moment. They just look, and instead of freaking out, yelling, flicking them off, they just go, It was so simple. 
and so brilliant, like stunning in its technique, just unison. Just. And like, I can't, uh, the guy must have just felt, he didn't respond. You know, usually you respond and then he yells like, you know, some words back, beeps the horn and you move on and, you know, you got your like anger out for the morning. And he just, his look on his face was just like, <laughs> it wasn't quite this exaggerated, but I felt like just a dog, like just a sad, or sad like child who just was told no and just goes like, like, shame on you. I'm taking some liberties here with the posture of God towards the Israelites. But you go through this and you get this sense that the Israelites are just like, continue to cut off and not obey traffic rules and just fail. And you have God just being like, no. In God's anger, in righteousness, in his total, like he has every right to charge in and just go, ah. I mean, even in like the story of Noah, Oh my gosh, this is a brand new revelation of God. He's like wipes out humanity. And yet, his desire is for relationship. He weeps the, the fact that the world has become so broken. And then he wants to rescue them out to have a relationship to keep this thing going. I mean, even God's, the posture of how these folks understood who God was, even then, was compassionate, patient. It ends in Nehemiah. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and on our leaders and on our priests and on our prophets. You've acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. This writer knows how faithful, how faithful, how faithful God is. We, as followers of Jesus, we as people who are understanding our story in light of the story of God, understanding our story in light of all that God has done, what does it mean for us this morning to understand that we have a God who is faithful? A God who upholds both sides of the covenant, who calls us to righteousness and yet is gracious and compassionate and meets us where we are. A God who is faithful. This is why Jesus in the New Testament, he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, now remain in my love Jesus doesn't call us to remain in how we feel about God, but rather to remain in how he feels about us. We are fickle creatures, and if it depends on our consistency, we are destined to fail, but it doesn't. It depends on the faithfulness of a dependable God who loves with an unchanging, unfailing love. A God who meets a fickle, unrighteous, broken, just silly, thumbs down, the fire's blazing, everything's fine. Just forgetful, forgetful, forgetful people. This God's faithful even in that. This God's faithful when you have doubts. This God is faithful when you are like just a, a, a you've, last year has just been a long exercise in apathy and despondency. God's faithful. God is like so unbelievably faithful when you feel like you've messed everything up. God is faithful to rescue, redeem, and meet you where you're at, to, to hold you and push you in the middle of your porn addiction. Like God is faithful and to, to carry you and to hold you and to draw you near that we might be restored when we have just turned away from who we were created to be, when we have sold ourselves a vision of our life that is small and weak and uninspiring and not filled with wonder and not geared into the things that God's calling you to in this season, God is faithful there. 
And so I could have just gotten up and said, hey, God's faithful, remember that. What are the implications of your life? But I find so often that we hear things like this and we go, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian, of course God is faithful. Or we're not a Christian, we're like, yeah, I've heard that God's faithful, what on earth? When we understand that the very beginning of redemptive history as a follower of Jesus, the very beginning of the whole thing begins with, I wanna make an agreement, you're gonna be a blessing to the whole world through you, my son is gonna come, through you, through this first people, I'm gonna redeem. And you know what? I'm not gonna hold you to the fact that you might not hold, like, you might not do this. I'm actually gonna be uh, <laughs> the fire pot, the solo person that in a covenant agreement where two people walk through, I'm gonna be the one person who walks through and says, I got you, I got you. Might we be people who respond to that sort of love, to that sort of grace, that when we come to our failures and our fickleness, our doubts and our questions, we don't come as people who have to white knuckle, push our way through, try really hard to be obedient and freak out. We can be people who come with a deep rest and abiding in Jesus and an abiding in our God, a resting in the effect that we have a God, hey, I'm with you. This isn't a God, it doesn't mean he doesn't push, it doesn't mean he doesn't call us out, it doesn't mean he doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't speak strongly to us in, in any of those ways. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. But as we sang and we'll sing again, our God is fighting for us. That's a passage from scripture. Our God is fighting for us. Our God's love is unfailing. It, 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 all, it, it doesn't ever fail. It, it always wins because it doesn't ever fail. Our God is for us. And may we hold that, that truth. May we hold that, 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 that great hymn, the great is thy faithfulness. There's no turning with you. Like all I've needed, you've provided. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, um, right now, right here, in this place, and in this moment, at this time, I ask that you would be you would be faithful. Um, as we understand the way your spirit works, Lord, that you, um, you remind us of your word. You come alongside us and you remind us of what it is, Lord, to obey, what it is to abide in you, what it is to, to see you and seek you with our whole heart. So for those of us who are in seasons of transition, may we be reminded that you're faithful. For those of us who need to be in seasons of transition, Lord, we're reminded that you are faithful to carry us through. There are, I don't know, 300 stories in here. 300 stories of people who I believe need to know and need to understand at the depth of some of the brokenness or some of the really beautiful things that are going on inside their lives or that your faithfulness endures, that you are true to your word. And so, Lord, I just ask you to speak.